Good morning, everybody. Uh, I would love to have you take out your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It's good to be together, um, good to gather for worship like this. You know the shortest day of the year is coming? I think Thursday, right? The 21st? Um, there's like, I don't know, I have a love-hate relationship with the season of the year. Like, there, there's something that's, that's kind of like, it, it's kind of depressing a little bit about like you come home from work in the evening or you come home from school or practice or whatever you have, and it's dark, and it's just like, it just feels like you have no, no daylight uh, left in the day, and it's dark late in the morning. And, and so there, there's kind of this, uh, this seasonal, what is it called, seasonal affective disorder can happen. Like we just, yeah, we just start to miss the sunshine. Uh, this is especially true if you're from Ohio, which is where I grew up. Uh, I have a friend who calls it permagloom that sets in over Ohio for like from November to March. You just, not only are you have shorter days, then you just have this bank of gray clouds. Uh, but thank God he delivered me from Ohio. And, um, and so... Um, but there's also a gift in this season. There's a gift of the, the gift of slowing down a little bit. To say, like, even the rhythm of creation is inviting us to just to push the brake a little bit and, and to stop and to slow down. And we can resist it. Um, we, can, we can just sort of get swept up in the current uh, that everybody else is moving at where you just sort of... Uh, sort of flying around and trying to get everything done. And, and, but we get the choice, we get the choice to choose to say, you know what, it's, it's actually enough. I, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just sort of, um, I'm not going to miss these moments. I'm not going to miss the season. I'm just going to stop. And I'm going to actually take time to remember the most important things in life. Uh, the people I love, uh, the gift of life. I'm going to take time to gather for worship. This is what we do every Sunday morning. We have this rhythm of the church, the people of God coming together to just say, um, you know, we all, this week we have stuff that pulls us in all these thousands of different directions, but we set this time aside to say, but this is the center of our life. But our faith in Jesus, it, it reorients us, it centers us. And so, man, I, I'm just thrilled to be able to share this um, this time together. Uh, so we're in our third week of this series, The Soul Felt Its Worth, and uh, this morning I want to talk about wonder a little bit. Wonder. Uh, do you have places in your life where you go to experience wonder? Um, or do you, have, do you have memories of like moments in time where you were just overcome with wonder? Right? I mean, you know that feeling, right? Where it's just like, ah, oh, you just, you, you, you are so fully alive and aware of the gift of the moment when, you're, when you just are overcome with wonder. Um, for me, like, I, I love Sunday mornings. I love being with you all. I love hearing you sing and all this stuff. But I feel most connected to God in nature. Um, I would love to, like, just to take all of you and throw your backpacks on, and we just head out on a trail somewhere for a couple of days. Because most in my life, those places I have felt most connected to God, most overcome with wonder, uh, is out in, out in creation, out in the middle of nature with no distractions and things like that. I, um, a couple years ago, we took a, uh, took a family trip. We took two weeks, and we took our, took our tents, packed up our minivan, and we did five states, did like, I think, 3,500 miles, five states, six national parks, 
and we were, this was like, we were insane. Um, our, kids, our kids were uh, six, four, and two. So Grayson was still in diapers at this point, and we're lugging them around national parks and setting up tents and stuff like that. It was crazy. It was a good kind of insanity, but it was still insane nonetheless. Um, but one of our favorite places, one of my favorite places, was Bryce Canyon National Park. How many of you have ever been to Bryce Canyon? Um, it, is, it is absolutely beautiful. Now, there are some, it's in Utah, there are some national parks that um, they inspire you with, with awe and, and wonder because of their just, their, their immensity. I mean, they're just huge and they're, they're so almost overpowering at how big they are. Like um, Glacier National Park is one of those. There are places in Yosemite or Rocky Mountain National Park, it's just like, or the Grand Canyon, it's just so big that it just like your, your jaw kind of drops. But Bryce Canyon isn't that way. Bryce Canyon is called the prettiest national park. Um, and so you have these little rock formations that are called hoodoos. And uh, you, you hike up, like you're on the lip of the canyon looking down over, and you get this, like, this feel as the sun moves across the sky and shadows are cast in different directions throughout the day. You almost get the, the feel the canyon is moving a little bit. And it's, just, it's, it's beautiful. So um, it was on my birthday, uh, June 1st. We hike uh, over the rim of the canyon, come around to this place, which is really close to where this picture was taken. I did not take this picture, by the way. This is on Google Images. Um, but I did take, or we did take this one which is our families hanging out at Inspiration Point, doing that touristy thing. And, um, and then we just sat there, um, it's toward the end of the day, and sat there as the sun starts to go down. And I remember that moment of just being overcome with wonder. I, I, and, and maybe you have moments like that. It, it was like, it was awesome in every sense of the word. How many of you know, like, the way we use words, it can strip them of their meaning? Like the word awesome, right? Do you know what the word awesome means? That which inspires awe. Um, and we, I, like, admittedly, I do this. I just sort of throw this word around so cheaply. It's like, oh, you got a new case on your cell phone. That's awesome. Is it really? Like, you are inspired to awe by this new case? I don't think so. Um, this is kind of a tangent, but it's also a pet peeve. Like, the word literally we don't even use the word literally, literally, right? I was literally flying. No, you weren't. You were driving really quickly. <laughs> literally, that's what you were doing. So, but I was literally feeling awesome in this, in this moment. These, these places where we're just overcome with wonder. Um, and I wish we could bottle up those moments, right? And just like, is it possible to live in a constant state of wonder? Like, is it, it's probably not possible to hang out on the edge of Bryce Canyon for the rest of, you know, for all of your days. But is it possible to live in a constant state of wonder? Uh, there's one group of people among us, one part of the church or of the population that does this better than anyone. Lives in a constant state of wonder. And you know who these people are, don't you? They're children. Children have this capacity. It hasn't been... <clears throat> It hasn't been shoved out of them yet that, hey, that stone, that, that star, like the moon, that it's, it's just ordinary. So they just live with a sense of wonder. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, I know I've shared this before, but it's, it's, it's so good. Uh, it's from G.K. Chesterton in the book Orthodoxy where he talks about this. He says this, A child kicks its legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life, because children have a bounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. 
Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. And they always say, do it again. And the growing up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For growing up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite for infancy, for we have sinned and grown old and our Father is younger than we. Like maybe this is what Jesus says when he says in order to to enter the kingdom of God, to live in the reality of God is to become like a little child. Maybe it's a child's capacity for wonder that's central to life with God. Just to live in the state of wonder. Is that possible? Now this Christmas season... Like, I want to just sort of submit to you that we are celebrating the wonder of all wonders. Like, the thing, the reality, the event that eclipses everything else in its awesomeness, literally. And it's the Word becoming flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John puts it this way, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I don't know if you appreciate exactly how hard it is for a pastor to stand up and to talk about Christmas in a way that inspires wonder, right? Because we, like, you've all experienced Christmas. You've all experienced lots of Christmases. Um, and, and it's really easy. The, the more used we get to something, the more common it becomes, the less we're just sort of overcome with wonder by it. If you had a house on Bryce Canyon, you would eventually just kind of like, you would miss the wonder of it. You would, um, you would lose that. And so there's, there's a, there's a a holy discipline of saying, we're going to reclaim it. We are going to allow it to, to, to sort of scandalize us again, to, to, to enter into the mystery. So, what I want us to do is to consider this verse, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And I just want to point out a couple of things that maybe you've never noticed before. They're kind of under the layers of it that will maybe help us to, uh, to feel wonder. Okay, so the Word, if you notice, in, in your Bibles, the word, Word is capitalized, capital W. The Word became flesh. And the reason it's capitalized uh, is because it's personal. It's referring to Jesus. But even before that, before the connection was made to Jesus, this word, word, was held in like the highest regard. Uh, it's the actual word logos. If you're reading it in the Greek, the original language, it, it's the word logos. And, and logos, word, is like for Greeks, they would have said the logos is the, it's the, the thing that is really real. Um, Greeks were really influenced by this guy, Plato. Maybe you've heard of him, um, right? He was, a, he was a Greek thinker. And Plato's idea of the world was this. He said, the world we experience, the physical world, is a world of shadows. We think it's real, but it's not. It's just a world of shadows. But there is this thing that is casting the shadows, some other world, and that's the logos. That's the reality out there somewhere. Now, we don't believe that, but that was how Greeks, when they would have read this, the word, that's what they're thinking. Ah, this is the thing that's really real. Now, Jews, when they would have read this word, 
they would have automatically gone back to the very beginning of creation, right? Because it was God's word that went out into the world and created the world. God's word is the power that, that brings things, everything into existence. So, so this idea of logos, it is as big as you can possibly get. The word. And then John says this next word, he says, became. The word became something that it was not. Like, seriously, like, think about this for a second. That you have God who is eternal past, who has always existed, who has no beginning, and God who will always exist, who has no end. I remember, like, just like, like as a kid, like, what do you mean God didn't have a beginning? Like, when? When did it start? Everything begins. Everything ends. And, and to just try to, like, understand the mystery of it, and you can't, and you, you just can't wrap your mind around it. But this God, who has existed for eternity past and will exist for eternity future, became something that God was not. And here's the crazy thing, is that in the Word becoming flesh, God became something that, that will not be reversed. Jesus becoming a human being means that Jesus is always and forever a human being. Like even after the resurrection, Jesus has a body. And his body bears the scars in his hands and the scars on his side. In Revelation, John gets a glimpse into like the heavenly reality and and he sees Jesus looking as a lamb as if he has been slain. Jesus is, is always and forever Bearing this physical body. God became something that God was not. Is that, is that unbelievable? I mean, to just like to let yourself enter into that, that God, the Word, became. The Word became. And then John uses this word that gets really scandalous. It's the word flesh. Uh, it's the word sarks. Now, he could have chosen a lot of different words. He could have said, hey, God became a human. He didn't. He could have said God had a body. He didn't. He said God became flesh. It's the grittiest word he could have chosen. The word became flesh. And this is so important to understand that Jesus, that Jesus was human the way you are human. Like that that Jesus experienced humanity, albeit without sin, the way we experience humanity. Jesus was experienced having a physical body the way we experience having a physical body. And this is, if we don't like recognize the scandal of this, we probably haven't thought about it enough. Right? That, that God became flesh. And, and so this is why one of the first heresies, one of the first heresies the church had to deal with was this idea of docetism. And, and where it comes from is the word um, docetism comes from the word to seem. And they, these, these people who kind of went this direction, they said, no, 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 God would not have actually become a human being, would have become flesh. Um, God must have, Jesus must have just seemed to be human. And one of the arguments they used was to say, can you imagine God going to the bathroom? This was literally, this is one of their arguments. Can you imagine God, the Word, becoming a human being and going to the bathroom? And they used that to kind of shock people to say, no, no, like we can't imagine that. So yeah, he must have just seemed to be human. And John says, no, the Word became flesh. And the good news of the incarnation is that Jesus went to the bathroom. He 
You can tweet that later, right? <laughs> like, this is scandalous. It's absolutely scandalous. The Word became flesh. Now, there's this passage, this, this prophet in the Old Testament named Zechariah. And in Zechariah 2, verses 10 and 11, there's this promise looking ahead of God coming to be with the people. Um, the words will be on the screen. It says, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion. This is God speaking through the prophet. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Now many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Now, did you catch the thing that's really problematic about these verses? If you, if you take a look at what the prophet says, it's God speaking, um, and it's, it's as if God is speaking in first person, but then verse 11, it says, In that day, or I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. How can God live among us? And the, if it's the Lord speaking, how can the Lord come and the Lord be the one who's sending the one? Does that make sense? Like, it, it doesn't. And so Jewish, like, they... Uh, interpreters of the Old Testament, they would read this and like, we, we don't know it. It's kind of a mystery. It's a paradox. By the way, when really smart people don't understand things, they tend to say, it's a paradox. It's a way of saying, we don't know. We don't have a sweet clue. Um, and so they, they wrestled with this, which makes no sense unless you actually have, a, have an idea of Jesus. That Jesus is God, is God's presence, but yet comes into the world in the form of a human being. But this promise in Zechariah says that God is again going to come and be among us. He's actually going to come and be with us. And it would have called back memories of the wilderness days, the days of the tabernacle. Are you, do you know the story of the tabernacle in the Old Testament? Um, there was this, as God's people came out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness. Everybody's living in tents, and God says, I'm, I'm actually going to have a tent too. And so they build this tent, and it's called the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt. Um, it was sometimes called the tent of meeting. And in Exodus 33, there's this crazy passage where it says Moses would go into the tent of meeting, and, um, and God's glory, called the Shekinah glory, like a cloud, would descend on the tabernacle, and God would speak with Moses like a friend face to face. So if, like, if you're there, you're like living in your tent, and you see Moses walk into, the, into the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of God comes down in the cloud. And um, like, imagine what that would do like, if you could actually see the presence of God. Wouldn't that be amazing? And then this cloud, would, if it hung around, the people would just kind of like keep their camp set up there. But as soon as the cloud lifted and would move, the people would pack up their tents and move with it. This was the arrangement. God was among the people. By the way, this is God's endorsement of camping. Um, if you want to be close to God, you need to camp. This is just, this is what the Bible says. Um, so, so, John says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And the word dwelled is the word tabernacle. Literally, it's the word tented. 
When Jesus came, he tented among us. Jesus was the new tabernacle. He was the place where God lived among the people. Now, not in a cloud, but in physical form. Jesus is calling back all of these promises of God coming to be with his people. This is why J.I. Packer says this, The Christmas event of Christ's birth is where the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. You cannot make up a better story than the truth of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Are we full of wonder yet? Do you see how hard the task is? Because this is, it, it becomes so common. It becomes so ordinary. And this is one of the things that as I look at, at the, the mystery of, of this Christmas season that we are worshiping God in, one of the realities is that God comes to us in the ordinary. God comes to us in the ordinary and continues to come to us in the ordinary. There's this guy, uh, Henry Herbert, who's a uh, phenomenal pianist, and he goes to this um, subway station. Have any of you seen this video on YouTube? It's got like 15 million views, right? And so he goes to this subway station where there's this really ordinary piano. Um, and you listen to it, it's almost a little bit out of tune. And it just says, hey, I'm yours playing. It's just sort of free-for-all. Anybody can sit down and play a song. And so people are in this subway station, um, uh, and their, or train station, and they're, they're making their connections, and they're on their way. And this really gifted pianist sits down and begins just lighting up the piano. I mean, it's unbelievable. I wish we could play it. It's like five minutes long, so it was too long. But go check this out. His name is Henry Herbert. It's called Henry's Boogie. And so uh, he just starts jamming on the, on the piano. And, and what you notice is that like just hundreds of people are walking by never paying attention to it. Like never even stopping to notice that in the middle of this really ordinary place, in a really, on a really ordinary piano, on an ordinary day, there is something extraordinary happening. But slowly people start to turn, and there are few, first a few, and you can see in the picture there are some who are like starting to just realize, like, this is really cool. I almost said awesome. It kind of was. And, the one, and this, is for me, is a picture of the incarnation. It's a picture of what it meant that God became flesh, that God just comes into the world in the most ordinary way, like with, surrounded by ordinary animals in an ordinary manger from Mary and Joseph, who were ordinary people, the good news was told to shepherds on the hillside who were just watching their sheep on an ordinary night. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did baptisms. And uh, if you've ever been here uh, for, for baptisms, like we have uh, two ways we do this. Uh, one is with just kind of a, a pitcher, an ordinary pitcher. And the other is we do by immersion where we have this really cool tank. And this tank was very expensive. Uh, designed for the purpose of baptisms specifically. Um, do you know what, what, what kind of tank do we use for baptisms? It's a stock tank. If you're a farmer and you bought this, your cows would be drinking from it. Like, that's what we use. And what do we fill it with? We fill it with ordinary water. And people are wearing ordinary clothes. They're not like in robes and vestments. They're just like, it's ordinary. Why? Because when you get out of the tank or when you are are done being baptized, you're going to go on living a pretty ordinary life. 
How many of you who have been following Jesus for 50 years? Anybody in this room been a Christ follower for more than 50 years? How many truly extraordinary days have you had? Like days when you're like, you were so filled with wonder that you just couldn't handle it. Probably not very many. What have the most, most of the days been like? You, you wake up and you follow Jesus. You, you pray and you listen to the Spirit and you trust that God is at work and you love people in simple ways and you live your ordinary life surrendered to Jesus, just being faithful to him. If you feel ordinary, you are in very good company. Because the story of the Bible is God coming to ordinary people just like us in the everyday circumstances of life and meeting us there. This is one of the mysteries of the incarnation. Do you realize, like, listen, think about this. Jesus was born and like the heavens explode and the shepherds, they come and they worship Jesus and then they go back and they start tending their flocks again and years go by and nothing Some of those shepherds probably died before Jesus began his ministry. Jesus lived, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us for 30 years, and almost nobody knew it. Jesus was a carpenter. Now imagine yourself working alongside Jesus, building homes or whatever he was building. Like, would you have known, like, would you have been handing the hammer to him thinking, this is the word of God made flesh? Or would you have just been like, yeah, this is Yeshua? This is another coworker. Is that crazy that, that the people weren't paying attention, that we didn't notice? Why? Because it was just so ordinary. If, if you feel ordinary, you are in such good company because this is how God came into the world and this is how God still comes into the world. Some of us, we look at our lives and we think, like, all the extraordinary stuff is happening over there. It's in the other parts of the world. It's in other people's lives. And I am just too ordinary. And if you feel ordinary, you are in good company because we are the material of mangers. God has always come into lives just like ours. This is how God meets us. And, and dwells among us. And the, and the second thing is that God comes to us in weakness. In weakness. Um, so the biggest conflicts Carmen and I have in our marriage are about expectations. Um, here, here, here's what happens. I come, home from, I come home from work or whatever, and I have expectations about how the evening is going to go. And Carmen also has her expectations for how the evening is going to go. And they're very different. I come home, and I'm going to like, fall asleep on the couch. And she's like, no, we're going to go get groceries and whatever. And at some point during the evening, there's, like, we realize we have very different expectations for how this is going to go, and there's a bit of a conflict. Right? Because both of us have assumed that the other person can read our minds. And that, we haven't figured that one out yet. How many of you know amens, like coming from the congregation, right? These expectations. And when our expectations aren't lived up to, there can be conflict. And one of the the, the biggest reasons that Jesus, that people missed him, was because their expectations weren't met. I mean, people were expecting him to come. And when God comes, when Zechariah's prophecy is fulfilled, and he comes, everybody thought he was going to come in power. It's going to come in power. Um, God's people, Israel, they were like, they were still in exile. I mean, they were back in their land, but they were under Roman occupation. They had been beaten up badly, and the bleeding had stopped, but they were still bruised. 
And they were waiting on God to send his Messiah to lead a new exodus. That just as God had rescued the people from Egypt, now they needed rescuing from a new Egypt, from, from Rome. And for 400 years, they were waiting on God's deliverer. 400 years they were expecting. And some of them expected the Messiah, when he was going to come, he's going to be like a new Moses. Right, these are the Pharisees. They thought when the Messiah comes, he's going to whip people into shape. He's going to, like, like Moses with the law, he's going to give new laws and he's going to say, you're out of line, and he's going to call everybody back to order, and he's going to be like a divine rule keeper. And he's going to finally distinguish who's in and who's out by who keeps the rules. That's what the Messiah is going to do. Jesus kind of ticked those people off. Uh, some thought that he was going to come and he was going to just like put an end to history and set up his kingdom and, and, and just sort of like finish everything. Some people thought that he was going to come like a military leader, right? He was, going to, he was going to come with the sword and with power, and he was, going to, he was going to show the Romans who's boss, and he was going to set up his kingdom. And they had all these expectations, and Jesus didn't come with power at all. He came, he, he came in weakness. If you're expecting one of the Avengers and you get a baby, you got problems. And Jesus came into the world the same way every other child has come into the world. Vulnerable, powerless, weakness. This is, this is a part of the, the scandal. And Jesus, he lived his life in weakness. He was born on the margins. He's born to an oppressed people. He wasn't born to the wealthy. He wasn't born royalty. He was born to peasants who were actually refugees, who were forced to, to leave and to flee to Egypt. He, Jesus knows what it is to be a refugee. That, and Jesus lived his life ministering to the powerless, to those who were pushed aside, who were invisible, who nobody else saw. Jesus looked at them in the eyes and he saw them and he called them by name and he healed them. And Jesus, he gave his life in an ultimate display of weakness. Like, right? I mean, he, he gave his life in what looked like complete weakness, not defeating the Romans, but being crucified by the Romans. And his life, what looks like on the surface, was absolute weakness, was on the flip side, it was the most powerful display of God's glory the world has ever seen. Because through his life, through entering into weakness, Jesus defeated the powers of death and brought about new and eternal life. God still meets us in our weakness. Still meets us in our weakness. This is why, this is why Paul, he can write in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Paul, he's like, he's struggling with his physical body. Anybody struggling with their physical bodies? Like, if just like you have pain, got problems. Paul, he cries out to God, and, he's, and God, this is God's reply, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul replies, he says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now here are two really cool things about this. First of all, the word rest on me is the word tabernacled. So that Christ's power may tabernacle, may tent among me. And there's also some, um, this is how most Bibles translate it, but there's some conflict over if this is how it should be translated. Because the word made perfect 
Most other places in the New Testament is actually translated made complete or finished. How many of you turned in your final assignments for the semester and you are finished? Classroom, not quite yet, almost. Like, is that a fantastic feeling? Three o'clock yesterday, I turned in my last assignment for the semester and I am finished. Woo! Um, I'm excited about it. So it, it's the word finished instead of made perfect. And so uh, lots of folks are saying this is actually how the verse should be translated. God says to us in our weakness, my grace is sufficient for you for your power is brought to its end in weakness. And then we respond, all the more gladly then will I boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ, not mine, may tabernacle upon me. God, our weakness is like an access point for God into our lives. Other places this morning where you just feel, you just feel ordinary, where you feel weak, Are there places in your life where you're like, you're trying not to feel weak? You're trying to pretend you have all the answers. And you're trying to to look smarter or more capable than you really are. Or you're you're trying not to let other people know that you're, you're struggling in one way or another. The, the gift, the gift of the season, the gift of Jesus, the gift of the Word becoming flesh is that when we're honest in our moment of weakness, this is the place God comes to us and His glory and His presence, it's with us and among us. God, we, um, God, we just, in all honesty, we admit, God, that we need You that, God, we are weak. God, we feel the weakness, um, some of us in our bodies, where we wish we had strength, it, it just isn't there, where we wish we didn't have pain, um, but we do. And so, God, we just, we just want to be honest that we feel this. And, God, we need you to meet us here. God, some of us feel it in other ways, um, we don't have the answers. And if we're really honest, even the answers we do have don't, don't seem sufficient. God, we are weak. And so, God, we just, in our weakness, we just say, God, we need you. We trust, God, that it, it is in these moments that, that you come and that you meet us and that your power floods into us and something extraordinary happens in the middle of our ordinary lives. God, that you are with us. God, help us to perceive it. Help us to recognize it. Help us to experience it, God, and to be filled with childlike wonder at your love and your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name.